I tell you what, go ahead and turn to John 20, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to read this thing to you. As you turn there, and listen, if you need a Bible, you don't have one, or you don't want to look on your phone or whatever, we have Bibles at the front. Feel free to grab one of those, and you own it. If you take it, you can have it. Um, those are just for free. Um, but as you're turning there, I want to read something to you that you've probably never heard before, and you've probably never even heard of before. Yet, it is the second most published work in all of human history behind the Bible. And ahead of a couple works in China and some literature work that we have here in the United States. It's, a, it's a, an article called A Message to Garcia. I just want to know, raise your hand if you've even heard of that before. A Message to Garcia. A couple? Well, y'all heard it because... I'm a geek about this thing, but A Message to Garcia was written in 1899 by a guy named Elbert Hubbard, okay? And Elbert had a lot of employees. He ran a publishing company, and 1899 was during the time of the Spanish-American War, okay? So there was a lot of stuff going on, especially in Cuba. And one day at dinner, Elbert was sitting with his family, and they were talking about who the real heroes were in the Spanish-American War. And they were throwing out generals' names. They were throwing out some of these different names that you would hear about in the streets. And then his son said something. His young son said, I think it's Rowan. I think Rowan is the real hero of the Spanish-American War. And his dad said, well, he's, I mean, he's just a captain. Why would, why would you even say that? And he goes, because he did what he was told. He did what was required of him. And see, this really resonated with Elbert at the time because Elbert, with 500 employees, had a lot of employees who were not really pushing the plow very well. They weren't really doing the job. And so what he did is he went back and, and they had this weekly magazine called The Philistine. Philistine was something they turned out, out of his publishing group. And he had some space in between some articles. And he thought, you know, I'm going to just jot something down and throw it in there as what he calls filler. So he wrote a message to Garcia. All right. Now, the next week, he started getting these orders for reprints. It was real popular, and he couldn't figure out which article in that magazine was making it so popular. Turns out as it was a message to Garcia. This guy by the name of George Davies, he was the president of the Central New York Railroad. He wanted half a million copies. And Elbert said, I can't even get you that many that fast. It'd take me years to print that many. So he just released the rights for this guy to print it. So this guy Davies, he printed out half a million and gave it to all of his employees. But this guy had a good friend in Russia who was his counterpart, who was the president of the Russian Railroad, Prince Helikov. Now Prince Helikov, he loved this thing called a message to Garcia, took it, translated it to Russian, and gave it to all of his employees in the whole Russian Railroad. Later on, the Russian government gave it to all of the soldiers. And as they fought the Japanese, as the Russians were being taken captive, the Japanese found it repeatedly on the prisoners, had it translated to Japanese, they fell in love with it, gave it to all of their soldiers to be carried on them at all times, just like, just like the, the Russians. Then the government officials, all of them were required to carry a message to Garcia on them at all times. And it just goes on and on and on to where now, see if I can get this right, I wrote it down. Yes, and then on top of that, and during World War I, it was given to every sailor in the U.S. Navy, a message to Garcia to be carried on them at all times. By 1913, almost 100 years ago, there were over 40 million copies in print 
and over 200 magazines in over 40 different languages. Right now it's estimated to have over 100 million copies to be in print and second to the Bible, the most published work in human history. And most of us had never heard of it, right? And so here I was, I just want you to picture this. I'm sitting in this living room with a bunch of college kids, like 50 of them, and I don't know up from down, but listen, I've heard the gospel my whole life. My whole life growing up in the church, I've heard it, and it never really chiseled in. I still had a real big heart of stone. I wasn't really willing to listen, didn't really care for what it had to say. In fact, I was kind of doubting God even existed altogether. And then this was read to me, the first paragraph and a half of a message to Garcia. I want to read it to you. I edited a couple things out, right? It says, in all this Cuban business, there is one man who stands out on the horizon of my memory. Now, when war broke out between Spain and the United States, it was very necessary to communicate quickly with the leader of the insurgents. Garcia was somewhere in the mountain vastness of Cuba, but no one knew where. No mail or telegraph could reach him. But the president must secure his cooperation, and quickly. What was he going to do? Someone said to the president, There's a fellow by the name of Rowan, and he will find Garcia for you if anyone can. Now, Rowan was sent for and given a letter to be delivered to Garcia. Now, how this fellow, by the name of Rowan, took the letter, sealed it up in an oilskin pouch, strapped it over his heart, and in four days landed by night off the coast of Cuba from an open boat, disappeared into the jungle, and in three weeks came out on the other side of the island, having traversed a hostile country on foot and having delivered his letter to Garcia, are things I have no desire to tell now in detail. The point I wish to make is this. McKinley gave Rowan a letter to be delivered to Garcia. Rowan took the letter and did not ask, where is he at? Now by the eternal, there is a man whose form should be cast in bronze and the statue placed in every college in the land because it's not book learning young men need nor instruction about this or that but a stiffening of the vertebrae which will cause them to be loyal to a trust, to act promptly, concentrate their energies, do the thing and carry a message to Garcia. Now General Garcia is dead now but there are other Garcias. Now, when this was read to me in this living room, I can't explain really how profound it was to me. That was the night I was born again. Because I think I realized inside of the message, as this was read and the gospel presentation given after that, I realized for the first time that you're not just saved out of something. See, I'd always heard that, that you're saved from your sin, you're saved from death, you're saved from depravity, emptiness, depression, you're saved from those things. I never once that I could recall until that day heard that you were saved into something. Just out of. And so, for the first time, I realized that I was being born again out of seeking my own mission and into seeking God's mission. That there was a mission that was much bigger than the one I'd lived my whole life. And it was the mission of God. Since then, I mean, the idea of mission being on mission has been defined, redefined, pushed on, ridiculed, formulated, disturbed, argued, all kinds of things. It's been confusing. 
I mean, even new words coming out. I mean, how, how many of y'all have heard the word missional and thought, what? Okay, what is that? Is that like mission, but now it's a cooler word or something? I mean, what is that supposed to be? And it starts to be a, become like a placeholder that you could stick before phrases. As long as you put the word missional in the phrase, that means you know what you're doing. We're not just having communities. We're having missional communities, you know? And it's kind of this cool label, like the new badge. And I remember that it was like three years ago I read that word for the first time in a book and I hate it when people make up words you know they try to coin a word and be the next thing and I read that and I thought missional what is that what is that supposed to mean you know it's like postmodern it can mean anything you want it to be I mean I could ask everyone in here to define postmodern and we're gonna get a million different definitions and that's kinda what it's become it's leaked a little bit in its definition I want to look today at what being on mission looks like. I want to look at what the word missional means, what it means for us, what I believe the scripture tells us. Believe it or not, this scripture right here is probably one of my favorite verses on mission. It's not the Great Commission though, which is typically the one that I've run to in the past and the church has run to. So this is what it says. On the evening of that day, just as after Christ was already crucified and raised up, it says, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. And as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I want you to cue in on that last phrase. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. That phrase declutters the idea of mission for me very fast. It strips all the fad off of it. Because what Christ is trying to tell his followers then, and what Christ is trying to tell us as followers now, is that how he was sent is how he wants us to be sent. His sentness needs to look like our sentness. If we're on mission, we need to look like our captain who has gone before us. Mission should look like how Christ did mission. As God has sent him, so we are being sent. And so, that makes it easy for me. Because there's some ground rules. There's some things that we could pluck out of Christ's life that make it easy for us. Mission's not so difficult. First of all, it's not our mission, it's God's. It's not our mission, it's God's mission. It was His idea. He thought of it. I mean, He owns it. And we're, we're invited into something that He's already doing. Christ was missional. And all that means to be missional is this. It means this. A missional person is a missionary that lives in their context while being faithful to God and His gospel. All right? To be missional means to be a missionary in the context you're already living in while at all times being faithful with God and His gospel. Christ was missional. right? But this mission was God's idea. And it's not some weird code for us to crack and have like a, a decoder ring to try to figure out, well, is this mission or is this mission? I mean, it's not some vague concept. God was very clear about it. He is very clear about it. And it's not really our own pet thing that we want to do, our own mission that we just kind of hope God signs off on. Now, this is something that a lot of us can be guilty of. I, for sure, can be guilty of this. I've got a reputation for grabbing a hold of bags with a lot of holes in them. And so what this looks like is we come up with something that we really want to do. And, my, and if you really ask yourself the tough questions, it really makes you look good. 
it's really about, it starts coming back to you a little bit more. You know, I want to look good. I want to look like, as a Christian, I know what I'm doing. Or as a pastor, I know what I'm doing. Or a church planner, I know what I'm doing. And we hope it's so good, we just hope that God signs off on it. And that his mission lines up with ours. But really doesn't have much to do with his mission at all. Young Christians deal with this a lot. And so, we have to understand, it's God's mission. Before we throw our lives into something. Just to define mission, even a little bit more. I've I tried out a few definitions on my wife. She's really a great litmus test for me the night before. <laughs> I'm like, babe, what do you think of this definition? She's like, I don't even get that. Okay, so I go back to the drawing board. This was the best definition I could come up with, mission. <laughs> and it's basically telling, installing, and applying the gospel where it doesn't already exist or where it needs to grow. It enlarges it a little bit because now it's not just about evangelism anymore. And it never was just about evangelism. I like how J.I. Packer says it. He says, The task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible through the faithful Christian living and witness bearing. To make something that is invisible in the kingdom of God visible before all who see while being faithful to God. While being faithful to God. See, it's his idea and it's well thought out too. It's preemptive in nature. I think growing up, and I don't know that this is anyone's fault. I think it's just the way my brain works. Growing up, I thought that we broke something that God made perfect, and so we had to hurry up on the rush and feel like he needed to come up with some remedy, some fix. Like we're in some terrarium, like an aquarium type of a deal, and he's watching this thing that was perfect start to crack. And then he just scratches his head. Oh my goodness, I didn't expect this to happen. I better come up with something. So he goes back and thinks and thinks and thinks. And the best he could come up with is the cross. So he gives us Jesus. But it's not reactive in nature. It's preemptive in nature. He thought about it before we had thought. I mean, the cross, the gospel was a reality before reality was a reality. Before the foundations of the world. We see that very clearly in Scripture. It says this in 1 Peter 1. Do you have that? Did I give that to you? I can't remember. Give me a Some of the ones I gave you we're not using. It says this. He, he meaning Christ. Right? From the preceding verses, he means Christ here. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So, it was something that was already part of the plan. That's difficult for me to wrap my mind around, that he'd had an answer before there was a problem. That's interesting. It's difficult. But it's beautiful too, because that means if it's his mission, and it's always victorious because he never misses his mark, God is never insecure, he's never a failure, he never comes up short, that means that anything that happens, he's involved in, and he's doing things all around us, we're basically joining him in his mission. A church that is really a church on mission is just basically about the things of God. That's virtually what it is. So... We're planting a church here, but make no mistake, God is planting His church. He's establishing His church. We're joining Him in what He's already doing. And it sounds like lip service, but it really does affect the way that we even set up church. 
That's what we call ecclesiology. That, all that word means is how the church is set up. That, is, that affects our, ecclesio- our ecclesiology. It affects how we look at each other as elders. You know, I mean, me and Kevin and Chase, we are elders. We share responsibility. But Jesus Christ is our senior pastor. Jesus Christ is our lead elder. And once again, that sounds like lip service. But I, I can't tell you how many times already that has rerouted decisions that we've had to make. I'm going to tell you one here in a little bit. It's really rough for me to talk about, too. But he's already leading people to the Lord. Now, this, is, this, this affects our view of evangelism. When you evangelize somebody, you tell someone about the gospel. They see their sin. They see the cross as their only exit. They call out to the king. There's a born-again spirit upon them. The Holy Spirit changes and regenerates. And whenever that happens, you didn't lead them anywhere. Christ did that. You were a part of something Christ already did. Growing up, I was always plugged with the question. I hated it. I hated it. Growing up, how many people, Luke, have you led to the Lord? I mean, have you all ever been asked that question before? And so I go, one, two, three. None? <laughs> I don't know. One? I don't know. I mean, I mean, technically, I mean, if I was like there when they were praying, I mean, does that count as someone that I led to the Lord? You know, I mean, and so you, you get all down into the technicality. Let me tell you something. If you prayed with someone, that was not upon the labor of your shoulders. Christ was already in the process of chiseling that cold, hard, stone heart out of their chest and putting a new one of flesh in. That's how that worked. Now, you might have been the 30th or the 40th or the 50th person to talk to them about Christ whenever they said, that's it, I've got to give my life up. But make no mistake about it. God is the evangelist that is really bringing people to Him. He's already doing it. It's His mission. We get to join Him in it. It is by our voice, by our message that we get to do that. But you don't have to live under the condemnation of the fact that you've only led one person to the Lord or two people to the Lord. Sow as many seeds as you can. But I will tell you, for all the people that I have sat and prayed with to receive Christ in their life, to be born again, for every one of those, there's hundreds that have wanted nothing to do with it. Now, are those hundreds failures? No. My hope is that those are hundreds of victories that other people are going to get to pray with. That I just merely sowed a seed. God is the ultimate evangelist. He is on mission. We are joining him in that mission. I spent too much time on that. So, as I clarify mission to you guys, I do want to just, because this is easier for me to learn things when I look at the opposite. I want to talk to you a little bit, just for a minute, on what mission is not. Okay? Just to kind of bring a little bit more of a crystallization around it. It is not simply, simply inviting people to a service. That does not mean you're on mission. It, it's a start. And, it's, and it helps because they're going to hear the gospel. And, and they're going to see a loose bit of community. I mean, this isn't really community. We're all in chairs facing the same way. You know, it's very non-communal. I mean, we're not really hanging out. We're not really eating with each other. We're not really horse playing and talking. about. We're all facing me as I talk to you. This isn't really community. But they'll start to smell the scent of it before and after, they'll start to see people talking to each other and they'll, it's, it's a start. But the reason it can't be the end game is because that passes the baton of ownership to me and then you lose it. But mission isn't about me. Mission isn't about me and Kevin and Chase doing all the heavy lifting. We're not the professionals on stage. Mission belongs with the people. A good missional church has people coming to the Lord, getting baptized. I don't even know who they are. 
They're like, yeah, I'm like, I haven't even met you before. Yeah, my name's Jack. I've been coming for like two months. Well, I've seen you, Jack, but yeah, I just got born again like a month ago. So-and-so preached the gospel to me. I'm actually on the schedule to get baptized in three weeks. Well, that's fantastic. Now, that's a great church. That's a great missional community right there. But if it's all on my shoulders, it will never look like that. If it's all on Kevin's shoulders, it will never look like that. So, God has never made his mission revolve around our services. The mission revolves around a person in Christ. And it is best seen in your life, not in my preaching. It's best seen in your life. Our preaching fills in the gaps. Preaching is going to fill in the gaps. I mean, think about it. I took the liberty to do some math for your, for your case, all right? I'm going to pretend that everyone sleeps nine hours a night, all right? We all sleep nine hours, right? Um, if, we, if we do, we have 15 hours left in the day. Y'all see how I just did that in my head? <laughs> we have 15 hours left in the day. If you do all of the math, the time we spend in here makes up 1.8% of our week. 1.8% is not your life. Life on life is life. The rest, the, the other 98% is really your life. That is when you're on mission. This is not mission. So it's a start. It's not really it though. Not realistically. Also, mission is not just only what pastors and leaders do. I hope I don't have to camp on this. I'm not going, I just, I choose not to. I'm not going to camp out on this. Part of me being on mission Part of Kevin being on mission, part of Matt, part of some of the leaders in this, Wes, part of us being on mission is equipping others to be on mission. That is part of me being on mission. Because I'm telling the gospel, installing it, applying it, where it doesn't exist or it needs to grow. Alright? So as we do that, it puts you on mission. It's not for us. We're not the professionals. Mission, good mission, a missional church is fueled by ordinary people. Very ordinary people, but they're speaking of extraordinary things. Just ordinary people doing ordinary things with very gospel intentionality, right? That's, that's what a missional church looks like. They'll hear it in your voice. They'll see it in your life. Also, being missional or being on mission is not just for overseas. This sounds like a no-brainer. If it's a no-brainer to you, I'm very glad. I'm very glad, but you are in the minority. Okay, I raise money, lots of money, as much as I can pull off for things like this. And we've done it for a long time. When I go to churches and talk to them about funding church plants, new campus ministry starts, and things, I'll talk to them and they'll be like, this is awesome. We need to get you with our missions department. I mean, these guys will eat this up. I'm thinking, well, great, hook me up. So I'll show up to the missions department, and I'm talking to a bunch of guys, and they love it. They're excited. They're like, this is brilliant. This is like doing missionary work, but like here, you know? And they're excited about planting churches, and we're like, yeah, it's great. We don't know what to do about it, because we just fund things that are overseas. We just write checks to things that are going to like, like if you guys were like going to Rwanda, this would be easy, you know? Sky's the limit, but you're going to Tampa. Or you're going to Knoxville. I mean, we don't know, doesn't really fit in a box for us. Missions is overseas to a lot of people. It was difficult. That's tough for me. And God's mission is overseas too. Let me tell you that. It's not either or, it's both and. God's mission is overseas because the gospel spreads here to the uttermost of the world. That's a fact. But missions is not paying four grand to go to Peru and then forsaking the dude across the street. 
<laughs> it's not missional. Not missional at all. Nothing against Peru. I'm just saying. Right? So, one thing that me and my wife learned when we were in seminary, we were in the school of missions, the school that we went to. So our masters would have been somewhere in the missiology I don't know what title they would have actually put on it, but that's what it would have said. Some missions would have been somewhere on the piece of paper they would have given us. And one thing that we learned is when a lot of missions organizations send people overseas, what they'll do is they'll make them live there for like four years before they even preach the gospel. Now wrap your mind around this. They'll live there, get a job, get a trade, meet their neighbors, feel the culture, the nuances of the language, the rhythms of the community for four long years before they even say, hey, we're a church, Christians, we're going to start a church. Four years. That blew my mind. I thought four years. I mean, four months is a stretch. Four years is ridiculous. But the deal is, is they're trying to get them to where they understand the culture. We don't have to do that here. You've grown up in it. You know it. You, you, it's second nature to you. There's no four-year lag for us. It's not just overseas. It is, but it's also here. God's mission has never been about dots on a map. It's always been about people. Another thing it's not is it's not aimed at salvation alone. This is a tough one. This is a tougher sell for some people, right? Because if the gospel isn't for the lost alone, either is mission. Think about it. We talk all the time about how the gospel, it lifts you up out of the mud, but then it continually cleans the mud off of you. It saves you, but it continually saves you. Not in the sense that you would ever lose your salvation, but in the sense that the gospel applied to your life is how you really put down sin. That's where true sanctification comes from, is repeated gospel application over and over and over again. When I beat lust, it's by the gospel. When I beat slander and insecurity and fear and depression, it's by the power of the gospel. If that is true for Christians and not just those far from God, so is mission. So is mission. I need it. I need people to be missional with me. You know? And this is, this, is, this is what I wanted to talk about that is not easy for me to talk about. Um, you know, a few, when we came here to Knoxville, me and Kevin and Chase, we knew that we were going to be a missional community. A community that truly represented who the church, not the thing, the people, really were to be. Right? We swore off doing things a certain way. And whenever we got closer and closer and we started to expand in the living room and we shifted in here, I got a wild hair and I reverted to something that I know, which is to go big. Go big or go home, you know, to be very attractional. So we're going we're gonna to put money and time and focus into the big pretty ads and into the Google and to the whatever to get people into the door. Because statistics say that when you do that, your church blows up. That's statistically what they say. And that's all I've ever known. That's all I've ever known, is to do big launches. And even though I was telling people with one side of my mouth that, hey, we're just doing this to let people know we're not in the living room anymore. Listen, that's true. That is one of the big reasons. But I have to tell you secretly, in my heart, I was harboring the desire for this thing to blow up and to be hundreds big. And it was stupid. And it was a failure, not just on my part, but it failed you because what I was doing is I was asking you to be missional where I was going to be attractional. And God wasn't going to let me be a coward like that. And so he broke me down. It was a very, 
difficult thing for me. I mean, it was a very humbling process for me. The reason I'm telling you all of this is because I had people in my life that were very missional where I wasn't. I wasn't being very missional to the city, but my wife, our elders, they were able to say, Luke, you, you put too much stock into people coming in from a big, stupid, attractional thing. That's not even us. It doesn't even fit us. It doesn't even look like us. It wouldn't even work with us. How can you be community with that many people so fast? I mean, not well. And they're telling me this, and it's balm to my soul. It's, it's remedy, and I know it. And they were being missional. What were they doing? They were increasing and applying the gospel to my life where it needed to grow. They were on mission for me, and I needed it. Because I sure as heck wasn't being missional. So I have to repent before you as a pastor, as a leader. It's not how you grow a church. God let us know very fast it's not how you're going to grow a church. He let us know. He let me know real fast. If you're going to do it, you're going to do it the way that you said you were going to do it. You're going to come. You're going to be missional. You're going to be growing a church by life on life. Not by posters bringing people in or ads bringing people in or billboards. Nothing against those things. I'm just saying for us, that cannot be the crutch we lean on. It cannot be the crutch we lean on. There. That's, that's done. I was not looking forward to any of that. But did you see how that works? You see how people can be missional, even with me. Mission is in your home. I can be on mission and off mission as a husband. If I watch my wife suffer and just tread water, and I'm just giving her little truisms, or giving her a nod, and just, I know it's tough, it'll be better. If I'm not applying the gospel to her, if I'm not installing and telling and retelling the story of God, I'm not on mission as a husband. It's bigger than just for the lost. It's bigger than just evangelism. We have to know that. So, you know, there's three, and I'm going to be fast here. There's three things I see nuances I see in Christ as we talk about how we are sent as Christ is sent. How our sentness, it should mimic and echo His sentness or else we're doing something pretty radically wrong. One thing that I see in how Christ did it was in the way He pursued people. His pursuit, right? It says this in John 1. Uh, I tell you what. Yeah. Is that? Okay. Which one is that? Yes. It says, The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet he, yet the world would not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory, as the only Son of God, or Son, full, I'm sorry, I'm mucking that up there, glory, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What this is talking about is the incarnation. You hear that word a lot, incarnation, or incarnational Jesus, or Jesus incarnate. Whenever you hear that incarnate, it just means with flesh on, or in flesh, right? So that's when Christ came. He plunged into his own creation, into depravity, basically, looking like us, breathing our air, sounding like us, but not acting like us, right? So of all the teacups in the cupboard that are cracked, he's the only one that wasn't cracked. He was perfect where we weren't perfect. He was clean where we weren't clean. But he was among us. He lived among us. We 
You hear a lot of times about churches being incarnational or we're incarnational Christians. We're really not. That's really not a good use of terms because we cannot take on flesh as Christ did. We already are here. But we are representational because we represent what Christ did. He plunged into and became one of us. We do the same. As we are sent like Christ is sent, that's what that looks like. We go to culture. We go to culture. Now, we might sound like culture a little bit, we might even smell like culture, but we're not going to act like culture to the extent that culture acts like culture. Right? And that itself can be a slippery slope sometimes. Now, what this means is, and we talked about, I think last week, or maybe the week before, about how gospel intentionality can just come up in your natural rhythms, your natural routines, just the things you do. You go to the gym, you do, you do whatever. You can be on mission in those very easily just by being gospel intentional. But listen, this is the thing. In real pursuit, you're also willing to be inside someone else's routine. Someone else's rhythm, even when it's not your own. You know, I was talking with, with Mike earlier this week and we're both, you know, kind of scrapping to get our old rhythms back and we were kind of just reminiscing about how nice it is to have a good sturdy rhythm. I like to protect my rhythms. My routine, I, do, I don't like it being altered very much. I'm real picky about that. I'm real nerdy about that. But if I just love people up to where my routine starts and stops, not really being on mission, Christ, trans, he, he actually crossed over from what was his routine, what was normal, what was familiar and comfortable, into someone else's normal. He left his own normal to be in someone else's normal. It requires the same for us. That's what it means for us to be on mission. Also, it requires a different proximity. A different proximity. Put up um, John 13, 34. For years, this verse used to stymie me. I just could not figure it out. Um, as a young man, it says this, A new commandment I give to you, this is Christ speaking to his followers, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, why does he say new commandment there? Why does he say that? It doesn't sound very new, does it? I mean, it, it kind of sounds like commandments that they've already had. Like this one in Mark 12. If you have that, do you have that one? Check you out. Got it all. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all of your strength. And the second greatest commandment is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So why is this new to love as I have loved you? Because this is the first time where love has become sacrificial. It's different to love someone as much as you love yourself, but to love someone more then you love yourself as being sent as Christ was sent. He is the ultimate, loving us more than he loved himself. He gave his life for us when we did not deserve it. Not many people, no one, would do that. What we'll do is we will love someone almost as much as we love ourselves, but to love someone more than you love yourself, think about that. That's a new commandment. You see, they're about to have to do church out of thin air. And they're thinking, Jesus, how do we do this? This is how you do community. You love each other more than you love yourself. Not just as much as you love yourself. More. And when people see that, when people see that, it will be intoxicating. It will be intoxicated. It will be a visual gospel 
To love someone as much as yourself is not much of a visual gospel. The world can do that. You don't have to have the cross to do that. But to love someone more, you have to have the cross for. It's in, we're incapable of doing it. So, that's why it's new. That's how he lived for us. And when they see it, when the world sees it, it will speak where your gospel has blanks. I mean, my gospel presentation, if you want to call it that, has blanks. Different people hear the gospel differently. And it's difficult for me to ascertain the words that were really speaking their gut language. The same language that their inner man speaks. They're just how they receive things. But when they see me forgive when I shouldn't forgive according to the world standards, when they see me interact in community, it changes everything. This is why community is so important. This is why community is so vitally important for mission. If To, to be on mission as a community, it puts pictures to the words. It puts skin on the bones. I mean, here's a sidebar. Just as a sidebar, okay? A little bit like this, but a little bit of a rabbit trail. Whenever you bring people into close proximity in community, someone that you're on mission with, they see two things. They see you being the same person around your friends as you are with them. That's a big deal. We're not putting on and taking off masks. Also, there's a cross-pollination where they start to meet some of your friends. And that's not so much of a short-sighted way of doing mission. Because now as, as Rob brings somebody, and I get to know him, and Kevin gets to know him, and Matt gets to know him, and Christian gets to know him, then the relationship, the mission, is not based on how strong his relationship is. Right? So if I meet a guy at the gym... If I'm just trying to, this is usually what we do. This is how we handle evangelism. I'm, I'm at the gym, in the locker room. I'm, I meet Jack. So I'm, I'm on mission. I'm going to preach the gospel until Jack gets it right, you know. And so every day I preach to Jack, preach to Jack, preach to Jack, hoping that he gets saved. Well, community's going to do a better job. Just invite Jack over to play cards. Get him over to play pool. Get him over to hang out. Have lunch with Jack when you're with somebody else. Because then they're meeting somebody else. They're seeing how real everybody is. Hopefully. They're seeing how real everybody is. Right? And now, my relationship with Jack is not based on the locker room at a gym. It's transgressed that now. Now it's in a third place. And now they know somebody else. I spent two... How long did I know Armando? Several years? Two? Two? I say two is several. Two is like a couple. A few years. A guy I worked out with. And far from God. Resistant to the gospel. Not for lack of trying. Preached and preached and preached. And we demonstrated. I invited him to every cool non-churchy thing the church ever did. <laughs> we had him in our home. We went to the beach with him. We celebrated holidays with him. I love this guy. I poured my life into this guy. I was sick to my gut when I left. Because I was scared to death that it was just all for nothing. And it turns out that it's not. There's people in the church that we left that are now talking to him, reestablishing that relationship. They're not working out with him, but they love him. They want to get to know him. Community works better than you just going Lone Ranger, trying to reach someone, trying to be on mission. That's how important it is. That's a sidebar. I'm sorry. That was for free. So, also, one thing I see also in Christ's, and this is the last thing I want to talk about, is how he proclaimed it. <coughs> When people think of Jesus, they don't think of someone very confrontational. But that message he preached was highly flammable. Very confrontational. You know, you could be the sweetest thing in the world. Some of you guys are really sweet. Really sweet. It would be really difficult to be offended by some of you. 
and you're going to preach the gospel to somebody. And if you preach it well, if you preach it in its completeness, they're going to be mad at you. They're going to be ticked because they've been confronted. Now, this is the deal. They're not mad at you. They're mad at the message. So don't take it personally. You just got to get over it. They're not mad at you. Okay? Paula says this. To, she's like, Luke, nobody hates you. Everybody loves you. You know, she has this, this idea that I don't have any people that don't like me. I think the older I get, the more people I'm getting that don't like me. But, but the truth is, is whenever I do speak a true gospel message, people do react. They react in the negative. It's an old Puritan saying that the same sun that melts the ice will harden the clay. Now, the reason they react is because it pushes on some very core things that make them up as a person. Idols that they have. Things that they need to survive. It pushes on it, leans on them. It says you don't need that. In fact, it's killing you. And so the idea of giving that up, the idea of having an undivided allegiance to something else scares them. The idea of giving up something that has provided a comfort, it scares them. That is what they're reacting to. Not you. Not you. These are the things that I see Christ doing in His Gospel. He confronted sin. Sin, let me tell you, when you, when you tell someone, when you are on mission, and you do get the opportunity slowly or quickly, however it might be, some people I get to really fast with the Gospel, and some people it takes a little while. You just have to kind of play it person by person. There's no formula for it. But whenever you do deal with sin, deal with sin. Whenever you do bring it up, don't slide over it. Don't just schmooze over it. It's important. They have to come face to face with it and see it as it really is. They have to do that. Sin has to be confronted. The cross has to be the only rescue. This is the second thing that I see in good gospel presentation, good missionality. One is that you've got to deal with the sin. The second is the cross has to be the only ripcord has to be the only exit. If you don't have the cross as the only exit, and you're not providing that, then it's always going to be Jesus and something. Always Christ and something. And that's the third one. The king that you tell them about needs to have no additives to it. None. We like to carry on baggage. We like to carry on baggage when it comes to Christianity. We want to bring something with us. For years, I watched my pastor lead people to the cross, show them the gospel, and pray with them. He was a true evangelist. He really had a gift of evangelism on him. And as I watched him, there would be, and I've said this a few months ago, there would be a time where someone would say, Oh, this is, I really need this. I need to give my life to Jesus. But does this mean I have to quit smoking? (laughs) You know, they'd say that. And as I'm listening to this person, I'm thinking, Nah, you don't have to quit smoking. I mean, and then I'd watch my pastor say this. You know what? Since you made it an issue, you do. If you hadn't made an issue about it, probably been okay. You made an issue out of it. You're wanting to carry that in with you. You're wanting to be Jesus and something. You're looking for a place where you don't have to abandon. You have to abandon everything. So for you, if smoking's the issue, then you've made it the issue. You need to get rid of it. You need to put it down. Not like there's anything innately wrong with smoking or drinking or, or playing poker or anything like that. But if you make it an issue that's a God in your life and you're not willing to give yourself to Christ with that, not attached... Man, when I first started hearing him say that, I thought, oh, well, that's legalistic. You know, I'd be so upset about the whole thing. But what was he doing? He was protecting them. He was preaching a better gospel than I was. It's tough. So, there's a lot of different ways I could have gone with how to do mission. 
But with 38 minutes, I wanted to spend some time there crystallizing what missional looks like, what it doesn't look like, what real mission is, and the nuances of how Christ was sent, because that is exactly how we need to be sent. So anytime you get confused, anytime you're thinking, gosh, is this on mission? Is this not on mission? Just think of what Christ did. How was He sent? Let Him, you know, He is your King Redeemer. He's also your example. He is your King Redeemer. He is your hero. He is your Savior. He is also your example. Okay? Does that make sense? Alright. We had a video for you today. I'm going to get. I'm trying to get extra points for at least telling them that we had a video today. You don't get to see it today. But we had one ready for you. Um, next week, we're going to start showing probably a video every week for the next few weeks to kind of introduce and start to kind of enflesh and color in the lines on what our missional communities are going to look like. They're going to be very helpful for you. They're going to kind of answer some questions that you might have had as we start talking about a little bit more of what our communities are going to look like in the home. They're going to be very easy for you to see and understand. So... Um, all that to say, you're not going to get to see it today. You like that? Um, but Kevin, are you ready, bud? Let me pray for everybody. and then. Uh... So go ahead and stand with me, and I'm going to pray for you. Listen, some of you, I will say this. This will be the one thing I say before I give Kevin this mic. Some of you, the reason you struggle... The reason, the one pure reason you struggle with installing, telling, and applying the gospel to others while you're on mission is because you yourself are not comfortable with it. You yourself are struggling getting your arms all the way around it. You get some of it. You might get a lot of it, but you don't get all of it. And if you don't feel comfortable with the gospel, you will never, ever, ever apply it to anyone else's life. You will never do it. And if you do try, you'll sound kind of timid and you won't be sure. And all they'll do is lean into you a little bit and you'll stop in the name of being friends. That's what will happen. You have to be comfortable, very sound in your gut, your gut of guts, that you are convinced that it is what it says it does. He is as good as he says he is. The gospel is as strong and as faithful as he says it is. You have to be so comfortable with who you are in Christ. And so if you're not there, you you really need to begin to ask God to lead you to that place. Ask Him to make your heart bigger. Ask Him to expose idols. Ask Him to help you with where your insecurities are at so that the gospel is not so much of a farce even in your own life. I have to do the same thing. Almost daily, I have to do the same thing. God, where do I not believe your gospel is good enough? Where do I not believe your good news? It's difficult work.